This is a Federal News Network podcast. If teleworking, remote hiring, and not in-person onboarding are all here to stay, could virtual reality be far behind? That's what people at Accenture are trying to find out. For details, Accenture's Executive Director for Global Talent, Allison Horn. Ms. Horn, good to have you on. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. And Accenture Federal Services Chief Innovation Officer, Kyle Michael. Mr. Michael, good to have you on. Thanks for having me as well. Now, Accenture has bought quite a quantity of headsets for virtual reality. What are you doing with them? I'll be happy to take that one. So yes, we have purchased 60,000 headsets for virtual reality. And we have even way more than that of people who are accessing virtual reality through their computers today. We are using them for all kinds of things, including learning, onboarding, collaboration, and even employee wellness in the metaverse. And let's talk about onboarding for a moment, because so many people are being onboarded or joining outfits, organizations, companies, federal agencies without going there in person or even seeing their new employer or supervisor in person. How does virtual reality enhance that? What do they see and hear when they put that thing on? So much of virtual onboarding today is taking place through platforms like Zoom or Microsoft Teams, and and we're using that as well. So as our people come in for two days, they are spending some time with us on Teams, they're spending time in large groups, they're spending time in small breakouts, but they're also spending time in the metaverse. So they'll join us for a couple of hours through one of these more, you know, today's traditional platforms before we will bring them into what we call One Accenture Park, which is our always open, always available virtual reality onboarding campus. And they'll come in there, they'll play some learning games to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we do. And then they can explore the various exhibits that we have set up that just help them to learn a little bit more about what to expect as they start their next phase of their career with Accenture. So there's a lot of background work that has to happen to create these. And you mentioned Metaverse. That's a trade name of Facebook, or Facebook is Metaverse. But is that the actual place that you're doing this in? So we think of the Metaverse and this concept even of a Metaverse continuum as the next phase of the Internet. This is where we're going with respect to how we interact how we interact virtually and how we interact through these new mediums. So you may hear, or you may have seen us talk in the past about something called Accenture's nth floor. That is the name for our Accenture metaverse. And then within that Accenture metaverse are all kinds of different worlds that we're using for all kinds of different reasons, including one Accenture park, which is where onboarding happens. But no cappuccino machines. Oh, there are absolutely cappuccino machines. There is even a coffee store in one Accenture Park called Global Coffee that everybody visits through their journey. Well, I won't ask you to comment how it tastes through an (laughs) Oculus headset. Fair enough. And Kyle, are you watching this from the Accenture Federal Services standpoint to see how you might translate these learnings into advice for federal agencies? Absolutely. I mean, we've, we've been looking and working in the metaverse for a number of years. Um, extended reality or XR capabilities is something that we've been looking at in Accenture Federal, but so are the federal agencies and our customers today. For example, in our federal studio, we've got a number of XR experiences for years. Where we've been bringing customers through to look at immersive learning, collaboration, digital work, and even the use of digital twins for what-if scenarios and operations. It's really a great way to kind of look at the realm of the possible. And it's been exciting in the last year or two 
as the technology has really advanced and made a lot of the what we might be able to do in the future be what we can do today and now. And just a detail question, you can present the nth floor any way that you choose to have it designed and appear to people. How do they establish how they appear to everybody else that's in the metaverse? Say I'm a new employee. Do I look like some kind of an anime character or what? Yeah, I'll be happy to take that. So this space of creating your own avatar is a really interesting one because the ethics and you know the overall acceptable use of avatars and so forth is an evolving space. And we're just like everybody else, figuring it out as we go. So we give our people instructions on how to create avatars. And yes, just like you're seeing most avatars today in 2022, they are cartoon-like characters. Most of them don't have legs. Most of them don't have elbows. It's you know, what you've seen through a lot of the different you know, media out there. And we really try to encourage our people to represent themselves how they want to in the world. If they want to represent themselves as coming from a different background, if they want to represent themselves as a different gender, then perhaps they you know, represent themselves in the physical world. You know, we are really trying to push the envelope there and say, show up as you want to, because this is a really important time and space to be making sure that you're able to truly bring your whole self to work. And that includes the metaverse. But as the employer, there's got to be bounds for what people can do to show themselves or to represent themselves. For sure, for sure. And we are very careful and very consistent and very comprehensive and reminding all of our people that our code of business ethics and our core values, which are very much alive in the real world, transcend to the virtual worlds as well. We're speaking with Allison Horn. She's executive director for Global Talent at Accenture. And with Kyle Michael, he's the chief innovation officer at Accenture Federal Services. And Kyle, I wanted to ask you, what can a federal agency, based on the Accenture experience, expect to have to do as foundational work so that when you present a virtual world or a metaverse to prospective employees or to existing employees, that it's tasteful, that it's useful, and that it's something acceptable to the number of people that will be in there? Yeah, Tom, I think it's a great question. And, you know, we did a research in the last year or two and saw that nearly 86% of federal executives surveyed said that by 2026, extended reality or the metaverse is going to be very or extremely important to meeting mission needs. And today, I think it's upwards of 75% feel that way. So this is something that absolutely federal agencies are thinking about. And so in terms of the prep, one of the things that, that we really encourage agencies and folks working in this space to do is to make sure they've tried out a headset, make sure they've tried the experience. Because oftentimes, if you haven't ever been in a headset or if you've never been in the metaverse, you may have a perception of what that is. But until you really get in there and have the opportunity to experience it, you may not understand the potential use cases to apply it to. And then I think really importantly to follow that is to make sure that you think about, well, what's the end in mind with an understanding of what the technology capabilities are? What are you trying to accomplish? We don't want technology for technology's sake. What we want to do is improve the experiences for our people, for the agencies, for the citizens that we're serving and so forth. So it's really important we start with an end in mind, but then it's okay. This is a new technology. It's evolving. So let's pilot. Let's try. Let's you know look at use cases, whether it be collaboration, whether it be learning, whether it be digital worker, et cetera. Figure out the best use case and try it out. And that's where I think it's really important to be able to you know, feel comfortable, understand the technology enough, but don't wait and wait and wait because you need to get in there and experience it to really understand what you can do with these types of technology. And at this point in the history of all of this, which is pretty new, do you envision it being something that employees would engage in episodically? That is to say, you wouldn't spend your entire working day of eight, nine, ten hours 
in the headset. If you're creating a document or if you just need to make a phone call, then you would be mostly out of it, and it would just be there for training or specific tasks or meetings. Yeah, maybe I'll start and then I'll turn it over to Allison because I'm sure she's got a point of view here as well. I mean, if anyone's worn a headset for an extended period of time, there's a comfort and a battery level and, and a number of things that come into play. So, so right now it's definitely episodic, right? You're going to use it for certain events and so forth. I think when you look at virtual reality where you're immersed 100% in that virtual world, that's going to be something where you're going to do that in pockets. As there's more and more capabilities that are coming with augmented reality, which is bringing in digital capabilities into our space, there might be some scenarios where you might be able to go longer or use it for different use cases. But I think that's going to change over time. And so that's where I went back to right now. It's finding those optimized use cases, those concise periods of time where you can get that high value, maybe that interaction that you can't do because you're remote and taking advantage of the technology to solve those. All right. And the meeting experience in the metaverse. I mean, the meeting experience in the video platforms is kind of like Hollywood squares. There's a three by six array of people all talking and some people are chewing, some people are looking away, some people are petting their dogs, whatever the case might be. Is it different in the metaverse? I'm asking because I've never put one of those things on in my life. Yeah, it's really different. And I think that's, you know, goes right back to where Kyle was saying, when you think about this whole space, it is so important to just try it. Because once you try it, and whether you're trying it because you're experiencing a game or a meeting or a social session, whatever it may be, you'll really get a sense of why this is different. The metaverse, right, virtual reality gives us the opportunity to bring forward this sense of presence that, again, the Zooms, the Teams, the video conferencing and so forth simply can't. It allows you to do things like actually have side conversations with people. Kyle can talk in just a sec about, you know, the benefits of spatial audio and what that means and why that's important. But there are a number of things like that in virtual reality that give you that sense of being there, being with other people that is very different than Zoom and Teams and such. Kyle, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the spatial audio piece? I do. Thanks, Alison, because I think it's one that really surprises people when you get into these experiences for the first time. So part of it is there's many new dimensions for people, depending on what experience you've had, the first of which is the 3D immersion of it. But the spatial audio is one that maybe doesn't come to mind until you're in the experience. And so spatial audio means if I'm in a large room and I'm speaking, those that are near me, I sound loud. Just think about a regular room if we were all together. But on the farthest distance away, maybe you can't hear me or it's very faint. Or if there's hundreds of people in the room, you got that chatter, but you can't necessarily make out what's going on. So you have the benefit, unlike a team session or a Zoom session, where you have to wait. It's very serial, right? I need to wait for Allison to stop speaking before I speak, if I'm going to speak to you. Whereas in the spatial audio scenario, I can move to be whomever I want to speak to. And, and with that spatial awareness, I can speak to those around me and those closest to me can hear what I'm saying and so forth. So it really mimics the real world environment. And I think adds a powerful dimension for how you can interact and collaborate with Sounds like what they used to call surround sound, but <laughs> that still exists anymore. And finally, what are some of the safety and security issues, both physically, because we've all seen the videos of people smashing into their TV sets while thrashing around with a headset on, and also the issues of possible harassment or untoward behavior that can happen between two people, and it's in meta space and nobody's recording it, or are they? <laughs> sure. So I'll, I'll start with that. Let's start with the safety pieces. So when you put a headset on and when you're engaged in one of these virtual worlds, there's this concept of a guardian or a boundary that you set up. You get to actually draw what is my safe space to be able to walk left, right, front, center, and so forth. And the technology is so much better today than even it was, let's say, 12 to 18 months ago. If you walk out of that boundary, 
your view is just the normal world in front of you. You lose the virtual world, you're back in the physical world. So that's been a huge step up. And that's a hugely important piece to kind of understand as you go from, you know, thinking about how this works in real life. When we talk about just some of the dangers that are out there, the dangers that are out there in the metaverse are the same dangers that are out there in the internet. It's just a different form and a different potential level of intensity because of the immersive nature, because of the sense of presence. And as you can imagine, at Accenture, we have all kinds of listening capabilities. We have all kinds of advisory capabilities. We have all kinds of things in place to ensure that our code of business ethics and our core values reign supreme, again, in our virtual worlds as well. But it is an emerging space. So we're all learning as we go. And, you know, we're making sure that we're sharing everything that we're learning here with our communities and with our clients going forward. Then, Kyle, is it possible for monitors to exist inside of the metaverse? It might be a human monitor or it might be an electronic monitor to make sure certain key phrases, key words, attitudinal types of things don't happen. I mean, so just like the Internet, I think that that's the way to think about it, right? On the Internet, you know, you have a search history. You have, you know, people can look at where, what sites you visited and so forth. I think using that as an analogy is the same way to think about the metaverse, the same types of considerations for what you do on the Internet. You have certain behaviors, you know, for a business. If I go on a website, there are certain websites that I can visit for work that are safe for work, and there are certain websites that are unsafe for work. Likewise, in the metaverse, there are certain behaviors and activities that are safe for work and certain behaviors that are unsafe for work. So I think thinking about the fact that your business code of ethics is followed, that it's well understood by all employees is really important. And then recognizing that in any type of electronic medium, there is typically an audit trail of some kind of what you've done and what you're doing that you need to be conscious of. And Allison, what I wanted to also ask you is what has been the acceptance of this in terms of demographics? Is there a male-female breakdown in how people adapt to this? Is there an age-related component to it? What have you learned so far? What we have learned is that we haven't found one yet, right? So we, of course, went into this with an assumption based on, you know, just stereotypes and instinct that said, oh, our younger, our more junior employees are going to be all over this. Our more tenured or more senior employees are probably going to be really hard to pull into this. We have not seen any evidence of that whatsoever, which is actually really exciting. We have junior people that are awkward and uncomfortable in there. We have senior people who like get it and are, you know, really great ambassadors of the space all over the place. And I'll tell you the feedback, you know, whether we've looked country to country, gender to gender, you know, age, you know, tenure, et cetera, the feedback is just resounding across all of our populations. And Kyle, who should own this, say, in an agency setting? I mean, there's a technical component to it that's very big, but the content is not really part of the CIO function. So what do you envision as the governance in the creation and operation of these virtual spaces? Yeah, I think that's one that, you know, we're, as we look at just technology overall, right, every business is in every agency is having to become more and more of a technology business. And the convergence of functional and technology together is a big part of it. And I think the metaverse is no exception to that. So there's a role for the CIO function to play, of course, in enabling that in a secure and efficient way. And then there's clearly a role for the business. And in this case, there's a creative aspect and potentially a marketing aspect of it as well that needs to converge in order to you know, optimize what you can do in these spaces. So it really depends upon the use case, but it's clear in almost all, well, not in all use cases that you're going to have to converge a set of capabilities across an agency to do that effectively. And any good anecdotes, anything happen, good or bad that you've seen in one of these spaces to let us know what to encourage and what to discourage? 
Tom, I wish we had five hours that we could share our anecdotes <laughs> across all these different places and spaces, but I'll just share a very general one, which is there is a moment and you can feel it. You can see it when someone comes into virtual reality, when they come into one of these virtual worlds, after they get through just a few minutes of how do I move? How do I turn around? Where you just see them get it. And all of a sudden, movements become really natural and people start to really understand how you turn your physical presence to someone when they're speaking to you. And it's really exciting. I mean, I have had the opportunity to see it now hundreds of times over and it doesn't get old. It's a pretty magical moment. Kyle, any final thoughts? Yeah, I would want to maybe build on what, what Allison was saying is the experience, and, and I'll maybe bridge together the concept of the collaboration and some of the immersive learning where, where we're going through training in the environment, the ability to have, you know, that emotive response because you're so immersed in the environment because you're getting experiences that you couldn't get in either a training scenario or in a collaboration scenario. It's an incredible thing to watch. I think what you have is that, that's why the training effectiveness is so high in this space. That's why the ability to kind of collaborate is so much greater than you see otherwise is because it's such a real aspect of the work that comes to bear. And you can see that in how people react, not only in terms of enthusiasm, excitement, but in some cases it could be an emotion reaction or a specific reaction to the type of training that they're going through. And I, I think that's the power here. It taps into more than just one sense of the human body and brings it all together in a new and immersive way. So we have a new science here. You might call it Medikit. <laughs> Love it. All right. Allison Horn is executive director for Global Talent at Accenture. Kyle Michael is chief innovation officer at Accenture Federal Services. Great having you both on. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Tom. This is great. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she 
worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm 
fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. <laughs> 